Well, there was a couple, and they invited some people over for dinner. And they were all sitting around the table, and the wife turned to the six-year-old daughter and said, Honey, would you like to say grace? Well, the little girl said, Well, I wouldn't really know what to say. And she said, Well, just say what, just say what you hear mommy say. So the little girl bowed her head and said, Oh, Lord, why on earth did I invite all these people to dinner? We're going to be talking about dinner with the king today. And if you would, turn in your Bibles or your smartphones, whatever you use to follow the Word of God, to 2 Samuel. And here we are introduced to a boy named Mephibosheth. Try to say that four times in a row. And sadly, we are introduced to his misfortune. Now, his grandpa, King Saul, and Mephibosheth's father, Jonathan, they'd been killed in battle. And so what that means is now the throne of Israel was up for grabs. Because in those days when one king was overthrown, it was customary that the new king would eradicate all of the heirs of the previous king to remove any threat from their predecessor. So the expectation was that David would now eliminate the entire family of Saul from the face of the earth. And so when the news spread that King Saul and Prince Jonathan were dead, the servants and the family of Saul began to run for their lives. And we see in in chapter 4, verse number 4, we see that when Mephibosheth was five years old and the news about the death of Saul and Jonathan came, his nurse took him up and fled and she made haste. And as she made haste to flee, the baby fell and became lame. Now, if we fast forward years, we see that Mephibosheth has lived in exile as he's feared for his life. And David is now solidly the king of Israel. And in chapter 9, verse number 1, David asks, Is there still anyone who is left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? You see, instead of eradicating the house of Saul, now David wants to show the house of Saul, compassion. And so there was a servant in the house of Saul, and his name was Ziba. And David asked him, is there not someone in the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba says, yes, my king, there is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. He's in the house of Mekur in Lodabar. So King David sent for Mephibosheth. See, I told you it's hard to say. Sent for Mephibosheth. And when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, came, he fell before David, knowing that his life was certainly over. But David said to him in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 7, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all of the land of Saul, your grandfather, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. So Mephibosheth, verse 13, so Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he ate continually at the king's table. And he was lame in both of his feet. The story of Mephibosheth is a story of a king who instead of eliminating his enemies' enemies' lineage, 
Instead, offered an arm of grace to a crippled prince. And David invited him back to the very place from which he had fled for his life. And Mephibosheth had a seat at the king's table. But I want you to know, friend, that this story is also very symbolic of the grace of God, our Father, our King of heaven and earth, who invites crippled people to his table. And not just those who are physically crippled. But he invites those of us who are crippled in our souls. Maybe someone or something has dropped you and wounded you today. And maybe because of what you've done, you don't deserve a seat at the king's table. But even though we've been overlooked, we've been rejected, even though we've been abandoned, the king of kings has made a place for us at his table. Now picture with me. Mephibosheth is a middle-aged man, and all of a sudden one day there's a knock at the door. And Ziba is standing there and says, King David wants to see Mephibosheth now. And I can just imagine a Mephibosheth trembling. And although it's a hot day, a chill runs down his back. And perhaps it was similar to the chill that, that he felt as a five-year-old boy when they announced that his father and his grandfather were dead. Perhaps it's similar to the chill that you felt as you were sitting in the doctor's office and you received the diagnosis. Or perhaps the chill that you felt when you heard your company was downsizing. And like Mephibosheth, you thought, you know, this just, this just isn't fair. Well, friends, you have to understand, you don't have to live on this earth very long to realize that life is not always fair. Well, in the early days, it started out great. The life of Mephibosheth was phenomenal. His father was Jonathan the prince. His granddad was the great King Saul, the first king over all of Israel. And you have to understand that royalty had its privileges. All of the friends, all the food, all the perks that came with living in the palace. I mean, back then, back then he even had a, a, a royal name. And his royal name was Meribal, which meant opponent of Baal, which was a false god at that time. And yet, because of what had happened in his life, he goes to the city of Lodabar, which means barren, dry pasture. And here we find the former prince of Israel living in exile in a desolate, destitute place. So in order to hide his identity, his name is changed from Meribel to Mephibosheth, which means son of shame. And he takes this deep breath and a sigh of relief because there's no way that the king will look for the son of shame in Lodabar. But yet there's a knock at the door. And he remembers as a little boy the messenger coming with the news that King Saul and his sons were dead. And he remembers the nurse saying, Maribel, run, run, Maribel. I mean, and his little five-year-old feet couldn't carry him as fast as he needed to go. And so the nurse scooped him up as they were running for their lives. And along the way, she trips, and the little prince flew from her arms. But she stoops down, picks him up, and keeps running because they're afraid that their lives are going to be taken from them. 
And then when she gets to the point of exhaustion, she tries to set the little prince down, and it was then that she realized that he could not stand on his own feet. So she can, continues the journey all the way to Lodabar, and she changed his name in order to save his life. And that day, the prince became Mephibosheth, the son of shame. On the day that his dad and his grandpa died, something went terribly wrong in this young man's life. And this boy, who was meant for royalty, was meant for great things, was now destined to live in destitute and barrenness. And so he lives for years in the place of barrenness. But then one day, Ziba knocks at the door and tells Mephibosheth, Gather your things. The king wants to see you. And I'm sure perhaps he felt like he was cursed. He wished he had never been born a prince because the king is finally going to get rid of all of Saul's family from the face of the earth. Well, soldiers rush into the house. They scoop up the crippled man and carry him to one of the king's chariots and take him to Jerusalem. And when they pass through the palace gates, memories of when he was a little boy begin to flood his mind. He remembers the gate. He remembers playing in the courtyard. He even recognizes the smell of the palace gardens as he's ushered all the way into the throne room. And I can just imagine his emotions are exploding. And then they set him on the floor and he falls face down, hoping to find mercy in the eyes of the king. And then David calls his name. Mephibosheth. But when he says it, there's no anger in it. There's no hostility in it. He says it with kindness. But that wasn't enough for Mephibosheth because then, because the Bible says in verse 8 that he looks up from the floor and he asks, what is your servant that you should look upon such a dead dog as I? But see, you have to understand that Mephibosheth had lived in a barren place so long that he had begun to see himself in the negative light of his surroundings instead of seeing himself as the prince that God had destined him to be. And how many times, because of the negative light of our surroundings or the difficulties of our life, have we forgotten that we are children of God? David said to him, Mephibosheth, I don't know what you expect, but I loved your father. And today I want to bring you to my house as if you're one of my sons. I want to care for you. I want to provide for you. I want you to have a place at my table. You have to realize this is a story of the amazing grace of God. It's the day that the crippled prince found out about the grace of the king. But the application for you and me today is that grace is the theme of this book. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is grace. But you see, so many times we want to rely on our own efforts and our own works. But the gospel says that there is nothing that you or I can do to earn a spot at his table. I'm not good enough. I'm not moral enough. I can't help enough widows across the street. No amount of good deeds is going to earn me a place at God's table. 
And the Bible sums it up this way, that on my best day, my righteousness before God is as filthy rags. Now, of course, as followers of Jesus, we're going to demonstrate God's love in tangible ways. But all the things that we do in the name of Jesus are not going to earn us a seat at his table. Because the salvation that God gives us is not initiated by the merits of man. It's initiated simply by the love and the grace of Almighty God. Grace is favor that has been unearned, that is undeserved, and simply cannot be repaid. And so back to our story, David, God has allowed David to defeat all of his enemies. So one day he's sitting on the throne in 2 Samuel chapter 9, and I'm sure he begins to think about how overwhelming God's work of grace has been in his life. I'm sure he looks back to his poverty as a shepherd boy. I'm sure he thought back to when he defeated the lion and the bear, and then how he cut off Goliath's head. And I'm sure he thought about even though he had had failures along the way, God had still promoted him to this place in the kingdom. And as David is overwhelmed with God's amazing grace, he's compelled to show that grace to someone else. You see, friend, when you remember how unworthy you are of God's grace, when you remember all your faults and your failures and your shortcomings, no one is going to have to force you to praise him. When I remember how bad I've messed up, when I think about how crippled I was, how undeserving I am, I cannot help but worship his name. Because of grace, crippled people still have a place at the king's table. And so what's so amazing? What's so amazing about God's amazing grace? Well, first of all, God's grace is going to find you first. It's going to seek you out and find you. You see, I didn't deserve a spot at the king's table. While I was fine physically, I was crippled spiritually. But yet the grace of God found me. And there are some people that will say, well, that was the day you found God. Uh-uh. I didn't find God that day. God found me. Because you see, he had been working on my life for a long time. He had been putting people in my path. He had arranged certain circumstances to get my attention. And then there was that time when there was a crisis in my life that caused me to cry out for a God who was bigger than I, and, he, and his provenient grace was working on me. See, it was the day that I decided to quit living in Lodabar. It was the day I quit, that I decided to quit living in destitution. It was the day that I decided that even though the king had the reason to take me out, he was welcoming me to a place at his table with open arms. You see, some people think that God practices karma. You be bad, you get bad. But you need to understand, friend, that God's grace doesn't care where you've been. He doesn't care what you've done. He doesn't care how you messed up. He doesn't care why you're in Lodabar. He doesn't care who dropped you or why you're crippled. All he wants you to know is that crippled people have a place at his table. And God is going to be on your trail long before you decide to come to him. And it's called provenient grace. That's a religious term for it, provenient grace. And it's summed up when Jesus said in John 15 and 16, you didn't choose me, 
but I chose you. God has been working in our lives long before we ever chose him. Another thing about God's grace is that, is that grace, God's grace remembers us. You see, Mephibosheth had been, had been abandoned and forgotten by his nation. But yet the king remembered him. And friend, you may be here today and perhaps your family has dropped you. Maybe your friends have abandoned you. Someone may have crippled your emotions. They, have, they may have walked out on you. You may have been overlooked. You may just be a number in the world's database. But I want you to know Almighty God took the time to write down all of your days in his book before you were born. He recounts the hairs on your head every time you comb through it. And if God attends the funeral of every sparrow that falls to the ground, you can be sure that you matter to him. God cares about you. He loves you. And you need to know whether you have been shamed, abandoned, or forgotten. You have a spot at the king's table. There is a place setting that has your name on it. But you have to understand, you have to accept God's grace. You have to receive his grace. And when you do that, you can't stay in Lodabar all your life. You can't hand out the same pity party invitations as Mephibosheth. Why would a king do something for a dog like me? No, because even David looked beyond Mephibosheth's failures and remembered him and invited him to the table. And likewise, your heavenly father remembers you and he has a place for you at his table. Next thing you need to understand about grace is that God's grace will pursue you. God's grace is chasing you. You know, some people think that God has left them. But the God of the Bible is a God that pursues you. I want you to know God pursued David while he was in an affair with Bathsheba. He was still pursuing David when David murdered Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. Now, most people would think that those things would disqualify any man. But yet, God sent his own son to earth through the lineage of David. But you see, in our culture, we throw people like that away. But yet, God bestows grace and gives grace to those people. And gives him a place in his kingdom. It's a scandalous message. It's an unbelievable message of the grace of God. In man's religiosity, many people who God has a plan and a purpose for are thrown away. And so while you may feel unworthy to sit at the king's table today, the Bible is full of examples of people who didn't deserve God's grace because they were spiritually crippled. But when they got tired of living in Lodabar, when they got tired of hiding in exile from a God that loves them, and they stopped and they surrendered to the grace of God, he changed their life. I've been in church all of my life. And sometimes I've been close to God and sometimes I haven't. But God was always dealing with my heart. And when I had strayed and tried things the world offered and it still left me empty, God was patiently and graciously waiting for me to give me another chance. And he wrapped his arms around me and forgave me 
Most kings would have never given me a spot at their table. Most people wouldn't given me a spot at their table. But because God is willing to get his hands dirty, he deals with messy people. Because those are the ones, those are the kind of trophies that he loves to display in his trophy case. Because those are testimonies to the power and the grace of a loving God. And listen, if stories of people on this platform having been in the hog pen of sin but then being set free by God's grace, if that bothers you, you might be in the wrong place. Because I don't know about your Bible, but my Bible says all have sinned. And we've all come short of God's glory. None of us are proclaiming to be perfect people. We're just people who were crippled, but yet have been given a place at his kingdom through God's salvation and his saving grace. Friend, I want you to know that no matter what you have done today, there is room at the cross for you. So grace will find you, grace will remember you, grace will pursue you, and his grace will carry you. Because let's be honest, there are times in our lives when we just can't carry ourselves, when we're at the end of our rope. Our talents, our abilities, our skills just aren't enough. You see, Mephibosheth couldn't get to Jerusalem on his own. And don't you think that as he would sit staring out the window, unable to walk, that his mind would wander to the what ifs? What if I had grown up a prince? What if, by happenstance, I would have even got to sit on the throne instead of having to live in exile? And I'm sure as he thought about those things, there was a part of him that wanted to go back to Jerusalem. A part of him that wanted to go home, but he couldn't get there by himself. Well, friend, I want you to know that there is a time when you want to go to God. There's a time when you want to come back home. There's a time when you want to connect with him, but you feel so messed up. You feel so ashamed that you don't think you can. But you have to understand that just as David sent to bring Mephibosheth from Lodabar to Jerusalem to rescue him out of that dark place and carry him back to the palace, In that same way, Almighty God and His grace finds you and His grace remembers you and His grace pursues you and it's this same grace that will carry you when you can't walk any further. His grace will carry you when you can't believe anymore. His grace will carry you when you don't feel like you're good enough. His grace will carry you when you're at the end of your rope. God's amazing grace will carry you. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 says, My grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And there may be someone here today that says, Mike, but you don't understand, I'm broken. I've done this, I've done that, I've tried before, and i failed, I haven't made it, I keep messing up, I keep blowing it. But friend, you need to understand that the more broken you are, the more messed up you are, the more addicted you are, the more of a candidate you are to be rescued by the grace of God. This world today is after perfection. 
But God is a collector of broken things, of broken lives, of broken dreams, of broken people. And he is a God who takes brokenness. He's a God who takes it and restores it and puts it on display to the world so that they may see the glory of his grace. You see, this is a gospel of grace. It's people who are in the process, not perfected, certainly not perfect, but in the process of being made into his image. Many years ago, many, many years ago, when I was in school, I, I played a lot of sports, and I used to think I was pretty good, so much so that my kids gave me a T-shirt one time that said, the older I get, the better I was. Which is probably true. But back in those days, I was the captain of, of my high school football team, and I certainly wasn't a saint by any stretch of the imagination, but the team knew of my commitment and, uh, and my faith that I struggled with from time to time, as a lot of teenagers do. But there was a kid on our team. His name was Barry Bennett. And this guy, he was a man among boys. He was strong. He was muscled. He was really a good football player. Well, one day he came up to me, and it shocked me. He, he told me how that I made an impact on, on our team on and, and off the field. And the part that really shocked me, you know, back then you didn't give compliments to other guys. You know, you just didn't do that. But the part that really shocked me beyond that was that when he told me he had tears in his eyes. And, you know, I was 17, 18 years old. I was trying to be macho. I was trying to be cool. So all I could say at the time was, oh, yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, cool. See, at that young age, I really couldn't see through what Barry was saying. I didn't realize at that age that the tears that ran down his face that day were tears of pain because he was crippled on the inside. See, I didn't know that his family was falling apart. I didn't know that there were addictions in his life that had a grip on him that was affecting every decision he made. And what he was saying was, Mike, I'm crippled in here. I may look like I have it all together, but I'm crippled and I need you to carry me to the table. Help me find a seat next to you. Well, quite a few years ago, the last time I saw Barry, his mind was gone, wasted on drugs and alcohol. Then just a few years ago, I learned that, that Barry passed away. I don't know if I was his only chance to lead him to the table. I hope not. I hope not. I miss him. He was, a, he was a good guy. We see Jesus told a parable in Luke chapter 14. And it's a story about a great feast, and the king sends out his servant to tell the many people who are invited, come on, it's time to eat. But yet one by one, they begin to make excuses. I can't come because of this or that. I can't come because I got a new wife. I can't come because I've got new livestock I have to try out. 
And the servant came back and said, Master, no one is coming to the feast. And the master said, then go to the highways and the byways. Find the ones who have been rejected. Find the ones who are broken. Go get the crippled and the lame and the blind and let them know that they have a place at my table. That parable certainly has meaning for you and me today because the Heavenly Father has prepared a great feast in eternity. And he has sent you and me out as messengers to remind everyone, to remind everyone that there's room at his table. So if you're here today, don't feel like Mephibosheth that and be trapped in Lodabar and feel like you have no right at the table. Don't be trapped in the prison of self-pity. Don't be trapped in the prison of bondage and feel like that you're not worthy. Because the darker it is, the more broken you are, the more God's grace can take you and carry you to the king's table. And if you can't carry yourself, God's Holy Spirit will bring you to his table. See, the reason that God's grace can carry us to his table is, that, is because of what Jesus did for us on the cross at Calvary. Because it was there that he became our sacrificial lamb in order to extend his grace to us. And while grace cost you and me nothing, it cost God everything. Because his son Jesus Christ paid for the grace that we can have with every ounce of blood in his body. And so remembering his sacrifice is why we have communion. And so today, for the remaining time that we have together, we're going to come and celebrate what Jesus did for us as we all come to the Lord's table for communion. And in doing so, we will remember that God's amazing grace is a result of Jesus dying for our sins. So I would ask those who are going to help us serve, if you would please come as we get ready to partake in the Lord's Supper. As they are coming, let me say, there is not a reason that every person in here should not partake or could not partake in the Lord's Supper. If you would go ahead and begin to serve the people. You know, so there's a lot of people that, that they're apprehensive because the Bible says not to take communion unworthily. And so they don't want to, because if they have something in their life, all, all, they're scared that, that they may not be worthy. But before we take communion, we're going to examine ourselves. And we're going to fall on the grace of God that came through Jesus Christ dying on the cross for each person in this room. We're going to pray the prayer of forgiveness. And you then will be able, without reservation, to enjoy. Enjoy coming to the Lord's table.